welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 62. I'm Nick Dixon. I'm joined by the nation's foremost QPR blogger, it's Toby Young. And coming up, should the Armistice Day march go ahead? The Nashville Shooter Manifesto is released and Tommy Robinson is unleashed on X, plus loads more. And of course, peak woke. But Toby, I thought we could quickly recap the art conference since I have now been as well. I went last week, interviewed a top guest, which is to be released on the current thing. And uh, you'll see that soon enough. That was good. And watched some of the speeches, met some very interesting people. And it was quite fitting, I thought, that the whole conference ended with a sort of elaborate song. There was three people singing some operatic thing. I'm not sure exactly what they were singing, but it was very kind of in-your-face, high-energy singing. Some people thought it was a bit cringe. Then it cut back to Jordan Peterson. I thought he was going to say something, but it was just a massive close-up on the big screen of his face in tears. (laughs) <laughs> which was kind of the perfect ending, just Peterson crying. He was frequently moved throughout the conference by his own words, like, I'm so moved by my own speech, I have to cry. And uh, look, we love, we love, we love Dr. Peterson, obviously we're just having a laugh. But what was your, did you go to any more days or just the first day? No, I on, I only went on Monday. Um, but I did, um, after we'd recorded our last podcast, the reason I had to rush off was to host an ARC dinner for various lawyers and barristers and judges um at the middle temple um uh, which was you know it was quite fun i had to lead this discussion and there were various speakers who'd prepared some remarks but it went reasonably well and then we buggered off to this pub afterwards and that was in some ways more fun i ended up chatting to jason kenny the former premier i think of um ottawa in um canada um, who is a kind of proper conservative. So obviously we've got on like a, a house on fire. So that was great to meet him. Um, but but um, it, it, what was your overall impression of ARC um, from the day you spent there? I mean, my, my, my impression, I don't know if I said this last week, I can't remember, but my impression was that the premise, which is that we need a better story to tell if we're going to win the hearts and minds, particularly of young people, away from the woke church, if we're going to pull them back away from the brink, um, from the nihilistic precipice, um, then uh, we need a positive story. We need an alternative movement religion that's going to appeal to them emotionally in the same way that wokeism does. Um, I think that, of course, that's that, that there's, there's a lot in that. But I think the difficulty is that the anti-woke coalition, of which you know, we're both part, um, is is a very broad coalition. And once you try and, it's easy to kind of, you know, get along when the only thing you have to agree on is that you kind of dislike wokery. Um, But when you then have to go from there to what it is you agree on, what alternative you want to see in its place, what the positive story is, you're going to put against this negative story, then, of course, you just all fall out and start fighting like cats in a sack. Because, you know, when you look at the different component parts of the anti-woke coalitions, you've got evangelical Christians, you've got pious Catholics, you've got gender-critical feminists, you've got, you know, right-of-centre comedians, you've got, you know, cynical old journalists. I mean, of course, they're not going to agree about very much, um, uh, apart from that they dislike the kind of authoritarian, smelly little dogma that is Wokus Day. Um, so I think the fundamental idea behind it, I mean, I can see why they came up with that. And there's obviously something to it. But agreeing what that p- 
positive story is going to be is going to be incredibly hard. And perhaps that's one reason why all the discussions on stage that I saw were very carefully curated. Um, and uh, there wasn't much in the way of argument or cross-examination. And there were no questions from the floor. So no opportunity to actually kind of discuss what the positive story should be. And perhaps that's because they thought the moment people start discussing this in earnest, we're just all going to fall out massively. Um, and that will kind of, you know, besmirch the enterprise. Yeah, well, I'll answer that. First, yeah, there was a few criticisms I heard. I mean, I think it was impressive to get that many people together. And we, we've got to mainly praise it for, for the effort and getting that many big names in a room. The one thing people said was, well, why were not more of them speaking? There were a lot of people there who didn't even seem to be speaking. I saw Brett Weinstein, Eric Weinstein. I chatted to James Lindsay briefly. But some people weren't speaking, which people found strange. Some people said it was too American. There were some Europeans there who said this is not going to go over in Europe. Some people said it was too religious and evangelical, as you've sort of alluded to. Uh, some said it was too vague. You know, what is this? You know, Peterson's talking about telling a, a new story and so on. And, and there was a piece about Philippa Stroud in the paper. But people are saying, well, yeah, but what is it? So that was a criticism. And to answer your point, I do think that is a point, but I think that's not a massive problem. The way I see it, if we beat woke, so yeah, it's woke versus conservative. Some people say woke versus anti-woke. It doesn't particularly matter which term we use. Once that's defeated, the, 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 the battle you're talking about is actually okay. It's within the bounds of free speech and within the sort of precepts and premises of, our, of what we understand as sort of Western liberalism. So I think that's what we want to get back to. Because I've been thinking about that in regards to the marches, which we'll get onto in a minute, whether there are some things that are just too far out of our culture that are just, you know, we want to rape and kill you all. And you're like, oh, that's an interesting point of view. You know, we can't really live with that. But but we can live with gender critical feminists versus someone who more, you know, anti-feminist. I think we can probably live with that once we defeat the really severe threat of wokeness, which has revealed itself in recent weeks to be pretty evil with the decolonization stuff following October 7th and, and with the Nashville shooter manifesto we'll get on to later. I think wouldn't it be nice to at least get back to that more domestic squabble that you're referring to? Absolutely. And I don't anticipate that being a problem. Um, no, the problem I anticipate is that according to the premise of ARC, we need to come up with that positive story first. We need to agree on a common agenda to defeat right, work. Right, right, right. And until we can do that, we're not going to defeat right, it. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That. No. That is. That is key. Right. Yeah. That needs to be first. And that's the alliance part, isn't it? It was called the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship. And I said in my interview, which is coming yeah. out soon, what about this alliance? That's where we've been much weaker than the left, who just get the new mm. memo. They like the Borg. They get the new software program. They all just follow it. Oh, we like Hamas now. Cool. Yeah, we like rape now. They just go with it. Whereas we don't want to be, we don't want to be inhumane yes. like that. But obviously, we're much more cautious about immediately allying ourselves. Yes. We're not collectivists. Yes. So that's a big problem, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think to be fair to Arc, they they have got a kind of um, solution to the problem I've just brought up in theory, which is they don't want the centre, the organisers, Jordan Peterson, Philip Stroud, James Orr, etc. They don't want them to be the people coming up with the new positive story. Rather, they want to facilitate a conversation between lots of local grassroots groups across the world, all of whom are united by their opposition to woke dogma. They want to facilitate the conversation between them in the hope that, you know, working together at a grassroots level, they will just sort of organically and spontaneously 
come up with the answer. That it, it may well be, you know, a protracted negotiation, but it's a negotiation that can be solved through, you know, respectful, serious, informed conversation. Um, uh, and that sounds maybe a little bit naive, but maybe that is the solution. But I think um, you can't just expect those conversations to happen organically. I think there has to be a degree of um, orchestration, stewardship, curation by the centre. And I'm not sure how much of that work they've been getting on with, but they did publish a number of policy papers, sort of briefing documents, which, which were sort of to kickstart these conversations, which the quality seems to be quite high. I met the research director. She actually came to this law dinner I, I sort of hosted, uh, and she seemed very impressive. So, you know, they do have a potential solution to that problem, but I think it's fairly embryonic, needs to be developed. Yeah, when I was listening to Peterson's speech, he t- well, there's the alliance part, then there's the responsibility part, and you think responsible it's a bit dry as a as a concept but he got very moved of course by his own words about it and it was actually quite inspiring he was saying you know it's take this conference you know be inspired to do something yourself it's a bottom-up thing it's not top down we're not the wef mm-hmm. i'm not sure if you mentioned that but other people did and and so if you don't want to be davos or the, i called it a base davos but the difference is you, you don't want to be top down uh and and you want to be bottom up so I actually took from that that actually I'm doing the right thing with this our new project that we're launching. And I was watching it thinking, yeah, it's about mm-hmm. responsibility. It's about building things ourselves. So, so that's what it's about. But that's not enough, as you say, really. It's nice to have a, a motivational speech and think, yeah, I'll build my own thing and crush woke. But of course, that's not enough on its own. But it, it's, it's, not, it's good that Peterson can evoke that in people. That's why he's so successful. But yeah, but you need yeah. these policies. Yeah, and I guess, and I guess, yeah, and I guess part of his his approach to defeating woke is that we have to stop thinking of ourselves as kind of victims lacking agency. That seems to be one of the components of woke theology, um, just kind of full of grievance and resentment and wanting to tear things down. So if we're going to if we're going to counter that with taking more responsibility for ourselves, starting to build things, then it can't be a top-down project it has to be a bottom-up project yeah and that was used as a kind of jibe against our side wasn't it just build your own twitter build your own social media because it was so impossible because they ran all the servers they can counsel you at any level but now with elon musk buying x and with people actually successfully launching things in a kind of parallel economy people do launch their own servers people have entirely independent sites so mm-hmm. it does start to seem more possible they still have youtube they still have google i mean they're still massive it starts to seem more possible with things like Rumble and and, and Musk owning X that yeah. actually you can build your own things finally and that we need to just yeah. start getting cracking on with it. That's pretty much what I got from it. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely kind of an alternative ecosystem there which has all the kind of infrastructure in place to enable people to certainly build digital products like we're doing. But it was a mad old week, wasn't it? I don't know why they put Battle of Ideas and Arc so close to each other just a pretty brutal week and even you said it was it was brutal for you so that just panics me to think what that could entail because my week was ridiculous i mean my week was like three interviews two conferences you know a debate several four shows on gb hosting two of them uh, you know all the preparation that goes into my interviews and this podcast drinking too much going still doing my strength training i just looked at my it was just ridiculous on the only day i had off was saturday because the show got cancelled another gb show i was meant to do all i could do was sit very still and watch Selling Sunset on Netflix, which I don't know if you've seen, but it's about reality. It's about real estate agents in LA 
You've all had a yeah. lot of plastic surgery yeah. and are awful to each other. And that's all I could manage to do, Toby. But what was so bad? What was so hard about your week? So on on Tuesday, um, I had to. Well, on Monday I went to Ark, and then on Tuesday I had to host this dinner uh, in the evening um, and sort of entertain everyone and take them out for a drink afterwards. And then on Wednesday I had to give. Um, I won the contrarian prize. <laughs> I think it was early last year, and uh, I had to, part of part of winning this prize is you have to then give a lecture at Bayes Business School, um, and uh, so out? I had to kind of. The, the business about, school gives out the prize. Well, it's it it it's it, uh, no, but it's a partner of um, the guy who gives out the prize. who's called um, Ali. He's called. Um, oh, it's a bit of a test, it? isn't it? Called, they, they, um, they offer you. Do you want the contrarian prize? And if you say yes, you don't get it. You have to say no. F you, and they go, brilliant, you're perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, anyway, so I had to give this lecture, and then there were a couple of respondents, and then there was a dinner afterwards. Uh, and then on Thursday, um, we had our um, our get-together for people involved in the Weekly Skeptic, um, which in the end was a bit of a bust. And we were, were supposedly we were going to celebrate the fact that the Weekly Skeptic has now received over one million downloads, um, which is pretty impressive for a you know fairly new podcast. And um, but you couldn't make it, and Jason, our producer, couldn't make it. So it ended up me and Will just having drinks with a couple of Daily Skeptic contributors, um, and that was at the Frontline Club, and that went on quite late. And then on Friday. Um, I had very had a, had a lunch I needed to go to, and then I had to meet some people at the Carlton Club, um, Aussies mainly in town for ARC, people in the kind of think tank political world, and then uh, talk about in part you know how to make a success of the Free Speech Union of Australia, which has just launched, and uh, and then on Friday evening there was a Quillette Social, Quillette being this Australian online intellectual maverick magazine. I used to be an associate editor at, and uh, Claire Lehman, who's set it up and is the editor-in-chief was in London for ARC and she hosted a, a, a sort of gathering at uh, Unheard which I, I put her in touch with Freddie Sayers and whatnot and helped that happen and um, that was fun Jordan Peterson was there was able to meet him he's I hadn't quite realized how tall he is in the flesh he's kind of he, he, he's quite an imposing towering figure uh, and he's kind of uh, he's quite charismatic, um, not surprisingly, um, up close. He really commanded the room. I mean, he was surrounded by people kind of trying to attract his attention and talk to him and buttonhole him. Um, but um, he was, you know, he was very nice, very friendly. Said, "Let me know how I can help with the Free Speech Union, and we have to set one up in Canada. And let me know how I can help with that." So um, I felt a bit guilty about all the teasing we've done of him on this show because thankfully he hasn't heard any of it <laughs> but uh, i don't think but um uh but uh, he was he was very helpful and friendly and charming um anyway and that that went on quite late um and uh like you i i, I drank far too much over the course of that week and have been kind of detoxing since yes yeah, brutal yeah well, I, I feel bad about the teasing but unfortunately this is one thing i do is just tease some of the powerful people in our space and it's caused me problems as i've alluded to before <laughs> i've alienated the odd billionaire and probably will alienate jordan peterson i had a chance to meet him of course at the gig i did with him at comedy unleashed and that's a small room where he was there but i didn't didn't bother i should have i'm getting better at that i'm getting better at what would constantine do and just going up to people but i'm not quite there yet <laughs> and I, I, as for the one million dollars we haven't even mentioned it on the podcast shockingly because people no, say I'm, i like to boast but we haven't actually mentioned we hit one million downloads you know so, sorry i didn't make it to the thing they suddenly made me host instead of panel on GB. And that requires I get in an hour early, write all my own links. Then I have to bring my laptop 
and I still tried to go, but then my taxi was late, and I was like, I can, now I've got to get to work with my laptop, and how am I, how am I going to do both? It's impossible to do both, and it wouldn't have been fun because I would have been so stressed about hosting. So the problem is, with the amount I'm working, all social things go out the window, and, and it's, I disappoint people all over the place. But on the positive, one million downloads is awesome. So thank you to all the listeners. We've hit that fairly quickly, and it is a big milestone. Yeah. current thing is catching up. It's doing well. It's over a quarter million, but one million is very good. So thank you for all the listeners, the one million listeners, or at least maybe not one million separate listeners, but the one million listens in total. Yeah, amazing. Thank you very much. Awesome. Well, let, let's, get on, let's get on to our first proper topic, because that went on quite long, although it was good bants. Great banter, as Alan Partridge would say. And uh, let's talk about a serious topic, the Armistice Day March. Now, should it go ahead? This is a big question. We've talked about it before, but tensions are rising. As we record, it hasn't been called off yet, but it looks like it might be. And we must say the polling is very much against it. I think 18% want it to go ahead in the country. So the, the British people have spoken and they don't want it to go ahead. It's being sold as a free speech issue. I wonder if it really is a free speech issue. And if it is, why were previous marches not free speech issues? So an EDL march was cancelled because the Met Commissioner said, we think it should be cancelled, Home Office. Home Office said yes, and it was cancelled, and no one cares because it's the EDL. Whereas this, the, 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 the Met hasn't been that bold. They've said it would be good if it was cancelled, should it maybe be cancelled. But the government and the Met are sort of in a standoff where no one wants to be the first one to say it should definitely be cancelled. So, although the, they both hinted at it. So, I've heard various things. There's also, is it a trap for patriots? Is it a trap that people go down there with England flags and Union jacks and they, they, get, up, they get up to some mischief? Or even if they don't, they're made to look as if they have. Is that a danger? Some people have said, let the pro-Palestine, pro-Hamas nutters show us who they are and, and, and the country will really see who they are and how violent they are and that they want to desecrate our monuments and then we'll see who they are. But then I go, to what end? Because that only makes sense if that's going to lead to some sort of political change. Otherwise, you may as well cancel it now because if all you're doing is showing how bad they are so that we can kind of ostracize them in future, just ostracize them now because politicians haven't done anything about it yet. So just allowing a load of violence only makes sense if there is going to be some sort of response. So that's one thing. I mean, I don't want to pile up too many things for you to tackle here, Toby, but the last one is... is, is something Andrew Doyle has dealt with in a typically brilliant piece in Unheard today about abandoning liberal principles. And of course, Andrew is arguing in favor of liberal principles. And he's arguing so well that I probably can't beat him, especially in the spoken word format. I'm a bit smarter in written format, but it'll be hard to beat Andrew, even though I think I do disagree with him. I mean, one thing is we've already abandoned liberal principles for COVID, for lockdowns. Of course, that wasn't a good thing. We've abandoned them in that EDL case in many cases. But I think it comes down to whether it probably comes down to how far you see Islamism as an existential threat. Because in Andrew's piece, I'll just give you a little quote here. He says, he's talking about the, the protesters who are celebrating murder and, you know, the, the really pro Hamas people. He said they're impervious to reason, but their sentiments are so essentially rebarbative that there is no risk of public opinion shifting in their favor. And I think that's probably true that really there hasn't been an uptake of, of Islam or of of kind of extremist views in that direction in the general population in this country. There may be more sympathy for Palestine in a more moderate way, but I don't think anyone's going to suddenly take up their ideas. But is, is it just a question of force? If you have enough people, you know, is it just a question of, is Islam a, is extremist Islam an actual existential threat? Or is it a threat in the way that Michelle Welbeck talks about in his novel Submission, 
that's France, which has you know more uh, more of an Islamic population, and it has a different political system, and it's a fictional novel. But you know, if Andrew's thing works, unless that people are just going to use force, at a certain point, you do just have to stop them with force. But anyway, Toby, I've piled up a lot there. But what's what is your take? Yeah. Well, this is an issue I've been thinking about a lot, obviously, because um, it's something the Free Speech Union is grappling with. Um, what line should we take um, about uh, protesters wanting to express their support for um, organizations like Hamas, Hezbollah, um, say very threatening and intimidating things, particularly to Britain's Jewish population uh, in the context of anti-Semitic incidents having increased by several hundred percent since October 7th. Um, so I think it's a, it's a difficult issue. Um, and I haven't quite kind of worked out answers to all the questions you pose yet. But um, I think my guiding principle um, about what should and shouldn't be allowed, bracketing the question of what isn't isn't lawful and whether the police should be enforcing the law or not, and if they are enforcing it, are they enforcing it in a rather arbitrary, seemingly one-sided way? Um, I think my my guiding principle is the principle enunciated by the Supreme Court, as I've probably said before, the Supreme Court in America, in a famous case called Brandenburg versus Ohio, in which um, they essentially said that within certain agreed limits, so no one, I don't think, even if they describe themselves as a free speech absolutist, is in favour of child porn or betraying state secrets or um, uh, you know extreme libel being permitted under a general free speech principle but bracketing those that cluster of issues the the, the the line taken by the Supreme Court is speech should be permitted and within speech they include protests unless it's uh, going to lead to imminent lawless action so by applying that principle, you can defend the neo-Nazi march through Skokie, as the ACLU famously did, uh, on the grounds that um, uh, it's 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 even though it's deeply offensive and unpleasant for a group of men in Nazi uniform to march through a Jewish neighbourhood, um, uh, if they're not actually urging people to attack particular Jews or particular Jewish property on their march but just Jews in general, um, then it should be permitted because it's not going to lead to imminent lawless action, i.e. an attack on a particular Jew or a particular house shop belonging to a Jew. Um, and you know that, that, that's an extremely high bar. And under that principle, most protests, most speech should be permitted. Um, and that's my kind of general default position. I think what i what i thought andrew got slightly wrong or at least an argument he didn't consider is the argument in the case of whether we should let the um pro palestinian protests go ahead on saturday and sunday this weekend given that it is remembrance weekend um and it's unfortunate you know the timing is terrible because usually a few days separate um remembrance day from remembrance sunday um but the way the calendar has fallen, Remembrance Day, which is always November the 11th, falls just before Remembrance Sunday, because it's always the first Sunday after November the 11th. So we have now a weekend, and Remembrance Day just happens to fall on a Saturday, and Saturday is the day the pro-Palestinian marches are now being organised, you know, or have been organised since um, October 7th. So it's unfortunate. But I think um, 
Andrew considers it as a free speech question. You know, it'll be deeply offensive, um, trampling on Britain's sacred values to interfere with the solemnity of this particular occasion. This is an extreme, this is for many people, um, something extremely important, uh, a very important ritual, very important ceremony. They want. They don't want to in any way dishonor the memory of the people who've made the greatest sacrifice, um, and um, it's an expression of patriotism, of our British values, and so forth. And the idea that the two-minute silence, which will be observed at eleven a.m. both on Saturday and on Sunday, will be interrupted by chants of "From the river to the sea," or someone will try and drape a Palestinian flag over the cenotaph or throw paint over the cenotaph. Um, that's all, you know, deeply upsetting and offensive. And Andrew says, "Yes, but that's not a reason not to let the protests go ahead, um, because we don't want to throw out our liberal values, which is, after all, what we're seeking to defend here, and the dividing line between us and." Um, the pro-Palestinian protesters, most of whom don't seem to care very much about liberal values. But I, I think I think he's overlooked a kind of um, the rationale for the Metropolitan Police asking the organisers of the protest marches to think again, to cancel the marches, and various Conservative MPs asking them to reconsider. It's not that we're not... It, the argument isn't that free speech doesn't encompass shouldn't permit you to say such deeply offensive things on this sacred occasion. The argument is that if we allow the marches to go ahead, breakaway groups may try and attack the cenotaph or daub the cenotaph with paint or interrupt the two-minute silence. And that could cause civil unrest, not least because lots of people, I think, will be um, descending on central London, on Westminster, on Saturday and Sunday to protect the cenotaph. Um, uh, you know, you overhear chatter about that in all sorts of places. Um, and um, I think the, the rationale for, 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 for stopping the protests is that it, it is bound to lead to really ugly scenes in the centre of London on what should be a very solemn occasion. And the police have a, a duty to prevent, you know, outbreaks of foreseeable civil unrest. Um, so I think that that that's the sort of nub of the question, which Andrew didn't quite get to grips with in his piece. And I think um, uh, I think that um, uh, I think in order to prevent civil unrest, which I, and I do think there is a really serious risk that that might happen if two rival groups of protesters clash um, around the cenotaph in Westminster. I think given that that's foreseeable, I think the police would be justified in banning the march. I mean, one of the reasons that simply asking the organisers of the pro-Palestinian protest march, the police asking them to reconsider, um, uh, is that yeah, they're much more belligerent than the Jewish groups they've asked to reconsider. So there was a, well, actually it wasn't a Jewish group, it was a Christians Against Anti-Semitism group that organised the uh, prayer walk in Golders Green a few weeks ago. And um, the police said, we've received intelligence that various extremist Islamists are going to attack the prayer walk. So we're asking you, in the interest of keeping your people safe um, to cancel the prayer walk, and they did cancel it. But um, those sorts of arguments aren't going to land with the organisers of the pro-Palestinian protests. So unless the police actually formally ban it, um, then um, uh, they're not going to call it off. But even formally banning it isn't, of course, risk-free. I mean, Macron has banned pro-Palestinian protests in French cities, and they still take place every weekend. And you can imagine, you know, the 
there aren't really enough police to kind of you know, enforce that ban, even if they issued it. So it is a really tough question, I think. Mm. But I think the police, you know, it, 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 it would be justified in actually banning the protests. And that still might happen. And that is one point Andrew made that the protests often go ahead anyway, as in France. So to be fair to him. But yeah, a few things I just want to add. Yeah, one is that you mentioned briefly, we have a two-tier policing system anyway. So I sometimes think in a pragmatic or perhaps cynical way, if we can abandon all our rules for lockdown or all our civil liberties, and if we have a two-tier system anyway, you know, maybe we should at least ban this and get a sort of rare win because it's not like we have this liberalism anyway. We have, a, we have something else now. We have some sort of post-liberalism and we have a two-tier justice system. That's one argument. Another one is this, is that... I was thinking about this the other day from a sort of scrutin perspective. Maybe I've got it wrong, but I was thinking I care about free speech, obviously, but I care about my country more. And is free speech actually part of a sort of subset of values? But the real value is just being English. And we've 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 evolved a number of conventions and beliefs over generations, but we don't have a rationalist top-down charter set of you know we don't have a marxism anything like that our beliefs have come from organically over time and this is sort of the heart of conservatism and the heart of englishness so if the english and british people vote in a poll and say no we don't want this this is our sacred day so to speak maybe they're just right because vox populi vox dei maybe they are just right because they are the only metric the, the people who decide what Englishness and Britishness is are English and British people. Of course, this can go wrong. You have lockdowns when people were sort of duped by data and, and they took advantage of our inherent good nature and so on. And, and I obviously didn't like that, although I did still go along with it. But in a way, the people have spoken. And, you know, okay, well, there you be, you're not being totally consistent with free speech. In a way, I might just be the meme and say, yes. Like, you know, do we have to care about that? Or do we just have to care about our values, you know, rather than this perfect liberal charter for free speech. Uh, and I just had one further point to come back on, which is, are we in a war? You know, a couple of people have said on, a, on our headliner show, Nicholas DeSanto said, we're in a war. I was like, careful, Nicholas. Then Lewis Shaver said it as well. I was like, okay, apparently we're just saying we're in a war now. Now, of course, we're not in a formal war. But although I agree you should let a few Nazis, you know, do a march, as we saw in Charlottesville or whatever it is, you let, let a few Nazis walk down the street. But if we were in World War II, we wouldn't allow Nazis to demonstrate in London, obviously. So if you say that this, this is a sort of existential threat of these hundreds of thousands of people who hate our values, let's say, and obviously there are people in the marches who, who aren't as extreme and so on, but a lot of them are very extreme. Do you just say, actually, this is a kind of a war footing and, and we, we can't afford this kind of thing? What do you think to any of that? Well, I don't think I agree with your first point. Um that you know the will of the people should prevail um because after all um rights don't mean anything unless you're willing to defend them in the teeth of overwhelming opposition they one of the purposes of civil rights uh, human rights is to defend minorities from the tyranny of the majority um uh, that's what i want the tyranny of the majority to... <laughs> no. that's what you seem to want yeah <laughs> Which is what J.S. Mill warned us against and Tocqueville. Uh, I mean, I, I think to bring in another to, to fact, you mentioned it briefly, but I think it's an important point, um, which is that um, let's suppose the marches aren't banned. They do go ahead. Uh, there is you know, some of rival groups of 
protesters clash, rioting breaks out in the centre of London and Remembrance Weekend is is, is tarnished. Um, the people who will get the blame will not be the organisers of the pro-Palestinian marches or even the breakaway extremist elements um, who engage with the people standing around trying to protect the cenotaph. The people who'll get the blame uh, will be people like Tommy Robinson. Um, uh, anyone, you know, um, going going into Westminster on Saturday or Sunday with a view to defending the cenotaph. Um, uh, uh, he already, I don't know if you, I mean, we were going to talk, I think, about Tommy Robinson being allowed back on X, uh, which has been a controversial decision, along with allowing Katie Hopkins back, um, and um, but the timing of of allowing Tommy Robinson back on Twitter is particularly unfortunate because um, he's already, I think, uh, he he said on X, um, he's essentially said Saturday eleven 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 London, your country needs you. So you know the bat signal has gone up, and you can just imagine. That if, if, if there are really ugly scenes in Westminster over the weekend, the people who'll get the blame, you called it a, 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 a trap, the people who'll get the blame will be Tommy Robinson and by extension, Elon Musk for letting him back on the platform and the EDL. You know, that's who Owen Jones and the kind of liberal Guardian reading elite will blame. The pro-Palestinian protesters, you know, they, w- they won't have to bear any of the burden for this. It'll all be put on the shoulders of the so-called far-right uh, defenders of the of the cenotaph. And that would be really unfortunate. Um, uh, and it would just be a way, you know, it would just empower the organisers of these pro-Palestinian protests even more. They think, God, this is fantastic. If trouble, if we start trouble on these marches, um, the other side gets the blame. Fantastic. From now on, we can start whatever trouble we want. Yeah, that is a definite risk. And I, I do think Many have been encouraging that, not just Tommy Robinson, but Douglas Murray has been slightly more subtly encouraging that kind of thing on his Twitter. One could argue, I'm not saying he's inciting anything, but he's saying things like, are we going to stand for this? And of course, people could take that a certain way. Yeah, and Tommy Robinson and Kate, we may as well talk about that now then. Tommy Robinson and Katie Hopkins put back on X and we discussed it on Headliners Uh wisely or not and you know it was quite interesting to have me simon evans and leo curse all basically say well tommy robinson has a point one point is that of course he should be back on for free speech reasons because certainly and i've I've made some arguments perhaps against the freedom of this protest but when it comes to the online space i see no reason why he shouldn't be on there shouldn't be up to some tech to even silicon valley as i said which is more reference to the previous to the musk era but it shouldn't be up to them why shouldn't tommy robinson be on People like Khomeini seem to be on there. Last I checked, Putin, whichever example you want to cite. So, of course, he should be on there. And I did point out he has been right about quite a few things. I mean, the grooming gangs being the most notable one. But for some reason, he's a totally toxic figure in this country. Whereas Douglas Murray, I claim, has been saying basically the same things with a posh accent and a posh education. I think there's an element of class hatred in there. Whereas Tommy Robinson is like the most toxic person. And he isn't perceived this way elsewhere. You know, Gad Saad immediately welcomed him back. Jordan Peterson has reposted something from his Tommy's getter that was somehow on Twitter a while ago, and he didn't think twice about it. He's not perceived in the same way in America or in other countries because it's, just, it's a very British thing that we think he's the most toxic person around. I do wonder if it will change because of everything we've seen, everything we're seeing with the with the pro Hamas stuff going on and the and with the grooming gangs and so on. 
It might change. Piers Morgan looks increasingly silly in that old interview clip with him, but it might not change if something kicks off at the cenotaph. So yeah, I think that is a, a real risk. I mean, what can you do? You, you know, people are bound to stand up and want to defend the cenotaph and things like that, but they are mm. walking potentially into a trap. They will be framed as, as the villain. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I part company, certainly with Tommy Robinson and some of my conservative colleagues on whether this is a watershed moment, whether in the last four weeks, you know, it's been a real, the last four weeks have been a real reality bath. And, you know, the nation is waking up to the fact that mass immigration from Muslim majority countries over the past 25 years has saddled us with a really hard problem, which is a significant number of Muslims in our country who seemingly reject our values, reject our way of life, side with our enemies. Um, and, um, you know, multiculturalism, it's clear that it's failed. We need to have a complete rethink. Um, I don't buy that. Um, I, I've sort of written a piece for The Spectator about this. I expect you and I will disagree about this, Nick. But I've just written a piece for The Spectator in which I've pointed out that, well, we have 4 million Muslims in this country. What percentage of them have actually been on these marches? I think generously, you could say that about 250,000 people have participated in one of the pro-Palestinian marches on a Saturday in a major British city over the past four weeks. But you have to discount 50,000 of them because they're the usual, you know, white middle-class rabble waving about, you know, um, Socialist Workers' Party placards. So let's say 200,000 British Muslims have participated in these protests. Well, that's 5% of the 4 million total. Are they representative of that total? I don't think they are. I mean, there was a, 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 a policy exchange poll uh, done by ICM in 2016, which showed that a majority of British Muslims, admittedly not a, an overwhelming majority, 53%, I think, um, uh, want to fully integrate, but a further something like 35% want to partly integrate. Um, British Muslims are more likely to condemn terrorism than the general population and less likely to sympathize with terrorists than the general population. I mean, it's not high amongst the general population. It was 4%. Amongst British Muslims, it's 2%. And for the most part, British Muslims have the same fears and hopes as ordinary Britons. And when you look back over the past 70 years, you know, maybe multiculturalism hasn't been the great success its champions claim, but we are a very successful multi-ethnic, multi-faith society. We've got a Hindu prime minister, a Buddhist home secretary, um, a Muslim mayor of London. Um, you know, in in the part of West London where I live, um, people of different faiths and ethnicities rub along together remarkably well, um, you know, and end up supporting the same football team um, at Loftus Road every other Saturday. Um, so um, I think that uh, the ugly protests we've seen, um, uh, uh, I make one more point, Nick, which is that um, to see, I mean, not only do the protesters um, not represent British Muslims, and most British Muslims probably aren't nearly as extreme. Um, uh, uh, but they probably don't even represent themselves. Think of them more as football fans. You know, when QPR play a local rival like Fulham, um, when we walk from Shepherd's Bush to Fulham, you know, mob handed, um, we will chant some pretty unpleasant things. And the sight of these predominantly male football fans under 30 walking down the street um, is pretty 
intimidating to many ordinary people. Um, but they don't really even represent themselves, let alone Shepherd's Bush. You know, they don't represent their best selves. And it's as though the people on these protests, maybe this is cutting them too much slack, but maybe because they're kind of caught up in the excitement of being involved in a tribal conflict, um, they've just momentarily lost sight of their humanity. And in the cold light of day, if you ask them when they're sitting down with their families, whether they actually sympathize with what Hamas did on October 7th, you know, even a majority of the protesters would say, well, no, actually, I don't. So maybe we're catastrophizing about these marches. Maybe it doesn't signify that Britain is heading for trouble and British society is facing an existential threat. And unless we do things like ban marches on Remembrance Weekend, then we really are finished as a country. We have to take a stand, etc. I think that is kind of being a bit melodramatic, giving into a tendency to be unduly pessimistic, to start catastrophizing. And I think, you know, I hope that um, as, you know, winter comes in, fewer and fewer people will go on these protests and um, and they'll be looked back on as a blip, not as a kind of a reality bath when everyone realised we had a huge problem in our country. Yeah, there is something in that. And I look forward to reading the piece, but there is something, I mean, even some fairly right-wing people on Twitter I've seen have said things about this. Um, this guy, who, academic agent, has a YouTube channel. And I, to be fair, I don't, I don't want to misrepresent his, any of the positions I'm saying right wing. I don't really know his positions. But he said that Anglos won't convert by sword or su- seduction. Islam has never even come close to conquering the West, and it won't. World War Three will happen before then, which is interesting. Uh, it's possibly overstated the, the because, as you say, I mean, there's lots of British Muslims, obviously, who identify as British, they're culturally Muslim, maybe they could be called cultural Muslims, maybe they go to mosque, maybe they don't pray five times a day, perhaps they're like Christians in many ways, that they, oh, I should go to church more and so on, And but they they don't want to destroy the country and hate all our values, they're, they're basically British, yeah, I totally accept that, and the ones who retain the the, the unreconstituted sort of loyalty to Islam, and Islamic, and an extremist version as well, they can never be reasoned with, it seems, because their values are totally antithetical to Western thinking. And it's such a different mindset. It's, I will be rewarded for maximum violence upon, you know, in the extreme, it's, it's I'll be rewarded for violent acts against these people. It's the Manchester Arena and so on, any, any other number of terrorist acts. And then slightly more mild, it's, it's screaming things and, you know, desecrating statues and so on and so on. That can never be reasoned with. So if that number was too high we would be facing a massive problem. But yeah, with your breakdown there, if it's just a pure numbers game, you're basically saying we can incorporate... Are you saying we can incorporate a certain number of these people? Because you're anti-deportation, aren't you? Because there is an argument. If you could identify the people that just are violently opposed to everything Western and who believe in raping and murdering Jews and probably Christians and white people and so on, if you could identify which ones those were, I see, like Douglas Murray, no reason they should be in the country. But obviously that has nothing to do with normal British Muslims. So what what are you saying, just so we can accept a certain number of violent, mad people who hate us? Well, I think that, that probably, you know, um, liberal Western democracies can accommodate um, hundreds of thousands of people uh, in their midst, living amongst them, who are completely opposed to our way of life. Um, I mean, I think 
obviously it changes if if the numbers become too great. But I think, you know, to use um, Popper's formulation, we can tolerate the intolerant um, uh, uh, when there aren't too many of them. And my impression is that, you know, people have exaggerated just how many people are opposed to British values and our way of life because they see those mass protests involving 100,000 people on the streets of our capital city. And it may be that that is actually the the, the, the peak of, of that population. And that is only kind of, uh, you know, it's at best a few hundred thousand Muslims out of a population of 4 million. Um, and provided that's not a growing segment of the Muslim population, then I think we probably can accommodate them. Uh, we have the kind of, you know, we, we, we have the... Um, uh, uh, the police, provided they start doing their job properly, um, to cope with, you know, a kind of rogue antisocial element. And I mean, I think the it's all very well to talk about, you know, deporting them, but there are probably even higher numbers of pretty antisocial, you know, feral white Britons um, who um, are contributing nothing to our society, are costing you know, um, us an enormous amount in terms of um, social services, public services. Uh, they probably take up a huge amount of time in the criminal justice system, reducing it to a kind of dysfunctional kind of mess. Um, you know, do you want to deport them too? And, you know, they go back to the question of, well, where are you going to send them to? You know, you want to deport, you want to come up with a kind of penal colony somewhere. Um, and uh, I think the European Court of Human Rights would have something to say about that. I mean, there are so many obstacles um, uh, that uh, I think it would be, it would be, it's not a practical political solution to this problem. We, we have to think about other solutions. Yeah, here are a couple of problems people think. A couple of uh, rebuttals. One, the, the white violent people, it were often called the chavs. Yeah, of course they exist. I've fought some of them on the streets of Newcastle. <laughs> I've felt, I've felt their existence in, in a punch on my face. So they definitely exist. That's our problem, though, you see, and that's a massive difference. That is our problem to deal with versus importing ancient conflicts from all around the world that is completely not our problem, which is insanity, which is what we've done. So it's a big difference. There's like that's our, our shit to handle, basically, and that's a massive difference. You can't deport, of course, chavs, but you can deport people who are not who are just arrived in the country and brought their, their, their own foreign conflicts. I think that's a massive difference. Number well, two, I, go on. I, saying, I don't think, I, I think you can say that, most of the protesters um, chanting anti-Semitic pro-Hamas stuff have just arrived in the country. Um, if you look at the profile of the um, Islamist terrorists um, in Paris um, from a few years ago, uh, most of them were, th I think, third generation um, uh Migrants, so their their grandparents had, had come to France from Algeria. Uh, their parents were born in France, um, and often the kind of um, atavistic ties to the kind of ancestral home country become more pronounced. You know, as you cascade down the generations, the first people to come over are very keen to integrate and kind of become more you know French than the French and uh, want to fit in. Um, but their grandchildren are alienated and angry and of course it's partly kind of fueled by kind of woke gobbledygook that they see on social media resentments are fueled they think white people are privileged and all the rest of it and they're victims of colonialism um uh, so i don't think you could i think it would be i think you know most of the people you'd want to deport are probably second or third generation 
British citizens. So um, I don't think you could get around that problem by saying they've just come here or they're, you know, they're, they're pending, they're, they're, they're waiting to hear about. What, I mean, I think if they were waiting yeah. to hear about whether to grant them asylum and they were guilty of, you know, public order offences, then yeah, deport them. Um, but I think for the most part, that's that's not a feasible proposition. You've convinced me, Toby, immigration is bad in all cases. Uh, <laughs> you've made the Japanese case just because we, if it's going to be three generations later, which is not not allow any immigration at all of any kind. You've sold me. But um, good point. But um, here's another couple of points for you. I accept, here's a, what's something I'll accept, that the wokeness is wokeness and decolonization. These are much bigger movements in terms of numbers and much more insidious, more dangerous in many ways. You're not going to get punched in the street necessarily, but those are incredibly dangerous ideas, and that is a large part of it, and that is a large part of the people on the marches or a certain percentage. So how do you deal with that? You can't really shut, say what well, you could say. No universities can can promote decolonization, but then you kind of pretty quickly undermine liberal liberalism and the point of a university. So that is the, that is the paradox of free speech. I accept that. So that's a point I would I would add. So yeah, fair enough. But here's one more point to, that does counter something you said. You talked about the numbers. The numbers are not that high. They're tolerable and so on. But it does change when you're if you're Jewish potentially. And I'll just give you a little example from my life. I was in a taxi on the way to work. We had to, we've just missed the light. And then we had to stop at Finsbury Park. And we had to wait. And I could hear this noise coming. And I realized that the march was coming. And we had to sit there in the taxi. And the police came over. And we had to let this whole march go past us. People very aggressive from the river to the sea, all that. Luckily, it wasn't that big. because It wasn't the main march. And so it passed reasonably quickly. We started to sit there quite a long time, making me late, infuriating me with this chant that I don't agree with. The driver, lacking all street smarts, pushed the wind, put the window down. I'm like, put the window up. You put it up. You don't put it down. <laughs> These people are right by us screaming this stuff. And I was infuriated. And I was thinking, what can I do, though? And I was thinking, if I was Jewish here, and let's say I was some, so in some way they could tell I was visibly Jewish, perhaps I was wearing certain garments, whatever it is. Let's just say they thought I was Jewish. Not only would I infuriated, I'd be extra intimidated. And I, and I got a real sense of it. I was like, I'm in a car on my own here. There's a great number of people coming right past our car, chanting, Basically, that I should, if I was a Jewish person, that I should essentially not exist from the river to the sea is essentially what it means, if we're honest, at least in that region of the world. So you you, you go, you know, so that's just, I've made an elaborate way of, 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 of elaborating on my point, but it's very simple, isn't it? it, it Jewish people are a, a small minority in the country, and there's more and more Muslims, and a certain number of them hate Jews. So, you know, not all of them by any means, but we've, as we've said, but a certain number. So what do you do about that question when you're, aren't you just complacently saying, I can tolerate this number of people because I'm not a minority? Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it, um, yeah. I mean, it, it maybe does sound complacent. It might sound complacent to any Jewish person listening to us discuss this, you know, and certainly anti-Semitic incidents have been um, increasing dramatically in the past four weeks. And it must be very intimidating. Um uh, and frightening to see these protesters, um, but I think the the solution to that problem um, is um, not to deport the protesters, uh, or even you know arrest start arresting them on mass or ban these protests. I think the solution has got to be to let British Jews know that they're not alone, that the majority of Britons are on their side, the vast majority have no tolerance for anti-Semitism. And that's one of the things, you know, in a small way, me and a group of other people did by starting the October Declaration, expressing our solidarity with the British Jews, 
setting out our disgust at the increase in anti-Semitic incidents, even defending Israel's right to defend itself. And so far, that's got 75,000 plus signatories. And I think um, one thing we need to do um, in the next few weeks is to organize um, a, not a counter demonstration, because that makes it sound too reactive, but a pro-Jewish, um, anti-Semitic demonstration um, on the same scale as the pro-Palestinian demonstrations, ideally even larger, if possible, through central London, um, to let our Jewish population know that they're not alone. We do care about them. We do stand with them. Um, we care about the hostages. We totally understand why Israel needs to destroy Hamas uh, and, and so forth. Um, I think that's the solution to the problem. Um, uh, counter speech, not suppression. Yeah. Well, there's also a question there of whether, whether Jewish people want to ally with some people on the right. You know, that is a question as well. I mean, I've noticed some people I've spoken to changing their views a bit who are very pro-immigration or who are more lefty. And now they're going, maybe we got this wrong because their allies are, are quite different people to who they expected. And, and Hugo Rifkin has just written an article that I should have read because it might be about this. It's called British Jews Should Be Aware Illiberal Allies. And I'm, mm. and I'm seeing he's mentioned Matt Goodwin in here. I'm only skimming it. I'm just wondering if his point is going to be, you know, we shouldn't side with these people. That is an interesting question, you know. Do the well, the crude way of putting it is do the Jewish people want the support of Toby Young? You know because yeah. that's the he didn't, they, he it didn't may actually, not be two way. Yeah. He didn't actually mention my name in the article, but, um, but is that but, what yeah, it's he, about? He, yeah, it, yeah, it is. It's essentially he's essentially saying um, we shouldn't abandon our liberal convictions in the face of all this intolerance on the streets of our major cities erupting, um, and um, we shouldn't. Uh, change our minds about the benefits of immigration um, or the need to uh, protect minority populations and defend their rights because after all Jews are a vulnerable minority population um, but but he was sort of agonizing over it um, you could tell that um, it's been a real test of his kind of secular liberal faith um, and uh, you know giving him a few dark nights of the soul it was one of his better pieces I thought most of the time he's just kind of incredibly complacent and just kind of uh, sneery. Um, but this was, I thought, more thoughtful than, than his usual stuff. Okay, I will have a look at it. And to me, it's clear that the Jewish people and uh, allies with, you know, sort of whatever we are in the uh, in this country, there is a, a, an issue on the right in America where there seems to be an obsession with funding for Israel and an isolationist stance where, where people are sick of the neocons and foreign wars. And it does get a little bit it gets quite anti-Israel on the American right. In a way, I just don't think it does in this country because we don't have any of those. We don't have those issues, really. We don't think about Israel as a, a, a big drain I, on us or anything like that. I've noticed that um, uh, among people who were originally lockdown skeptics, then became vaccine, vaccine skeptics, and are now very skeptical about some of, you know, about net zero and 50-minute cities, um, there's, there's, there's a reluctance to side with Israel. Um, they're not siding with the Palestinians, but they think, you know, I think that I don't want to speak for them, but 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 um, what I see a lot in the comments uh, below the line on the Daily Skeptic are people saying that, you know, uh, this is just smoke and mirrors. It's just another distraction from what's really going on. Um, uh, they, they, they kind of speculate about 
um, how it is that um, Hamas were able to penetrate this incredibly high-tech security fence, why it took the IDF so long to respond and repel these terrorists, how did they manage to kill so many people? You know, I think very distasteful speculation implying that there was a degree of complicity there between the Netanyahu government and Hamas, which I really don't believe for a moment. And I think it's much more likely that, um, you know, this high tech fence just um, didn't do its job. Um, uh, and NS Lyons actually wrote a really good piece about that for Unheard, a perfectly rational, very plausible explanation for why there were so many failures um, on October 7th, which resulted in so many Jews being slaughtered. Um, but um, yeah, but I, I think I think it, it's generally true that that amongst the people who are, you know, members of the anti-woke coalition, most of them side with Israel. But there is a kind of, within the kind of sceptical community, um, there are people who, who, who just don't want to take sides and see it as a distraction from what's really going on, you know, the Great Reset, etc. Yeah, I did speak to a, a very smart Jewish person who's not a lefty, who who gave some credence to the how did Israel not know conspiracy, which I don't buy into myself. I mean, America's a little different. I agree we have that here. We definitely have the, I've had people say it to me, why are you falling for this thing, Nick? It's like, well, I'm not falling for anything. I've just got my moral compass intact about the actions of Hamas. But it's like, no, you're falling for the current thing, Nick. You know, and these are the people who now won't, will just be skeptical. If you want to call it skeptical, really, that's quite generous because usually it's just a blanket refusal to buy into anything now it's much harder mm. as i always say to analyze each one independently and be in that uncomfortable middle ground rather than just say conspiracy again israel's a conspiracy ukraine it's all a conspiracy so i think that i've definitely seen that in america though what i was saying was a little different it's not the conspiracy right it's the maga right who are sick of you know funding israel as they see it and it can be an innocent thing where they're criticizing foreign policy and neocons and it can be a little bit of a less innocent thing where you're thinking you seem to really hate Israel, you know, so we don't stop, but we don't have that here on the right. Like you say, we've got the conspiracy people, but we don't really have on the right a kind of, not that I've seen anyway, a real kind of anti-Israel sentiment. No, no. And and Tommy Tommy Robinson is um, fanatically pro-Israel, isn't he? Yeah. Um, (laughs) That was a joke I made on headliners. Annoyingly, the clip that got shared, it was cut out. Because mainly I just wanted to get to my joke. I said, the great thing about this is, Obviously, Josh has attacked um, Tommy Robinson on, on headliners and doesn't like him, of course. But I was saying, now he's back on X. I just want to see Josh Harry retweet him because they're both like <laughs> radically pro-Israel. And that would be just such a funny moment for me <laughs> to find, you know, this big lefty who is, is, hates Tommy Robinson having to be forced to repost him. It would be quite amusing in a way. But yeah, he's massively, massively Zionist. Interesting. Isn't it? Should we have an ad, Nick? Um, yeah, I was going to say. Got, um, uh, so let's, How many let's, have we let's got hear... today? We, we've got three. So um, this one's from Life Guru AI. So lifeguruai.com brings you the wisdom of AI, providing personalized insights and practical advice tailored to your unique journey through life. Whether you're seeking direction in your career, aiming to enhance your personal wellness, or eager to embark on a path of self-improvement, our AI mentor is available at any moment to offer thoughtful, precise counsel. The platform is intuitively designed to simplify life's complexities, empowering you with clear, actionable guidance. With LifeGuru AI, you gain more than just answers. You unlock a deeper understanding of your own potential and direction. Start crafting a more fulfilling life today with LifeGuruAI.com and embrace the clarity that comes with every inquiry. 
Experience the transformation with Life Guru AI, your AI-powered pathway to a limitless life. All right. Thanks for that. Let's so, move on. There. Oh, go on. What you I was going to say, we, we spent quite a lot of time now talking about that particular issue. And I know we wanted to bring in um, some of the extraordinary stories about who the police are being advised by. Um, but shall we not do that and just move on now to Across the Pond? Yeah, you're trying to host a show, Toby. You're getting out of control. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, we could uh, we could do that. Yeah, we were going to talk about the infiltration of the Met. There was this guy, Atik Malik, who was a hard-left activist who who said things like, from the river to the sea, and he was for some reason advising the police in the, in the response to the uh, Israel-Hamas conflict. We had Amina Ahmed, who had uh, said something very similar, that supporting Israel is a hate crime. And she is also involved. And so yeah, there's a strange thing that the Met Police has been infiltrated. And then I was also going to briefly mention this guy that was arrested, on the other hand, for criticizing people putting Palestine flags everywhere. And he managed to get arrested by the police, just an ordinary citizen saying, why are there these flags everywhere? So yeah, we were going to mention some of those things. But you're right. We are running out of time a bit. But do you want to cover Starmer Poppygate briefly? Yeah, okay, let's do that. And just just, just in reference to what you just said, yeah, I thought um, one thing about Amina Ahmed, um, who... Um, she she wants um, expressions of support for Israel to be a hate crime, um, and uh, she's actually an employee of the Metro, Metropolitan Police. She describes herself, I think, on LinkedIn as a leadership program facilitator and project manager working for the Met. And um, interestingly, she spells program in the American way, P R O G R A M. And when I first read it in the newspaper i thought she'd written leadership program facilitator <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> that's that rather appropriate <laughs> what a typo but actually she's just spelled program in the american in the american way um and okay. um yeah the, the guy you mentioned who was arrested um in bethnal green for posting i think a video on facebook of all the palestinian flags flying on bethnal green road i mean it was really extraordinary there were just dozens and i think it was just filmed it from his bedroom window um uh the free speech union is is looking after him he's a free speech union case we think uh we think the police will eventually conclude there's no case to answer but it remains to be seen oh very cool i'm glad you're doing that thanks for that you're everywhere you guys um and just to close off the the Armistice Day March story, which did get quite long, but I think it was interesting. I'm sticking, I'm sticking with banning it, and I'm invoking what I'm going to call the the meatloaf exception, which I think you know we want free speech, but for some things like desecrating the cenotaph or attacking our sacred day, it's like I would do anything for free speech, but I won't do that. We have to have occasional exceptions. I'm just going to call it just a just a rare exception. Just it's just written in there as an amendment, and that's just how we're going to deal with it. But you can't attack our flag and our, and our Remembrance Day and our Armistice Day. I just, just stick it in. as a, Can I have that as just an amendment that just... You can have it as the, the, meat, the meatloaf amendment to, yeah. Britain, to Britain's first amendment, should we ever get one. Or <laughs> it, you can stick it in the Bill of Rights, like asterisks at the bottom of the page, footnote, meatloaf amendment. Yeah. All right. I think, I think p- most people would accept that. <laughs> oh, good. I've won my point uh, with an analogy. So let's um, very briefly then just do Starmer, because I think I might have said we were going to do it. So Starmer did this odd thing. He suddenly launched Islamophobia Awareness Month. It was quite insensitive because another a trans group tried to do a trans awareness month. I'm like, guys, you're taking away from Islamophobia Awareness Month. That's pretty selfish. So it was a ridiculous month. And it, people thought it was very crass, of course, in light of all the anti-Semitic attacks to suddenly 
launched an Islamophobia Awareness Month. And it was absurd. And it was quite transparently, in my opinion, an attempt to salvage the Muslim support for the Labour Party because Muslim councillors were fleeing in their droves and because he's, you know, he's been too pro-Israel by just saying Israel has a right to defend itself and doesn't have to turn on the taps and so on for Gaza. So he's been in trouble about that. And then he launched this Islamophobia Awareness Month. And the other thing that made the, that was trending on Twitter, let's say, was he didn't wear the poppy. And if you look, he's wearing the same suit, the same tie as earlier when he's at the Remembrance Day speech. But in that one, he's wearing a poppy. In this one, he's not. He's wearing his glasses in the Islamophobia one, to be fair. So there has been some change. But the poppy is gone, even though the tie is at the same slightly offish angle, suggesting, did he deliberately take the poppy off to address the Muslim community? And I have to say, it does look like he did. Yeah, it certainly looks that way. And that is quite shocking. And something I would imagine the Conservatives could make a meal out of in a party political broadcast or a poster during the general election campaign, you know, a, a, a hit piece. You contrast him minute, moments before, moments later, poppy before, no poppy after. Why? Because he's addressing a constituency he hopes will vote Labour and who apparently are not going to vote Labour if the leader is wearing a poppy when addressing them, um, which is, I mean, I think he's doing Britain's Muslim community a disservice myself. Um, yes, I've heard uh, that argument. You know, yeah, um, I, 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 I don't think that uh, you know that 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 he's going to ingratiate himself to them by taking off a poppy because the implication is that they're not patriotic; they are all, you know, opposed to our way of life, and he's pandering to that. Um, so yeah, I'd be insulted and patronised if I was uh, a Muslim Labour voter um, on seeing him do that. But yeah, it is; it's it's pretty disgraceful. Um, uh, you know, um, and I hope he, I hope he loses some votes over it. Yeah, patronising as you say, and people pointed out. Look, he's he's highly choreographed. He knelt for Black Lives Matter. He was wearing face paint for Pride, so he doesn't do things by accident. As the leader of the Labour Party, unlikely he would just forget, as as they claim. So very very suspicious of that. Yeah, all right. So we, that's that story. It wasn't a ma- it's, it's important, but yeah, I think we've dealt with it. So now let's go across the pond. And it is our occasional section across the pond making a comeback because we have this rather dark story and it's still unfolding about the Nashville shooter whose manifesto was leaked by Stephen Crowder. Because as we know, people were calling for this manifesto to be released because the implication was, oh, we're not hearing about this one. Chances are then it doesn't fit the woke narrative. And that is exactly what's happened. It's come out. There's all sorts of talk about these uh, kids with white privileges who this person wants to kill. There's all these notes. It's it's very disturbing because it's scrawled notes in someone's uh, diary and we can see screenshots of them. And this this tra- trans, well, it was an Audrey person, was planning to kill these Christian kids. And she does refer to their white privilege. And it does seem to be based in obviously mental illness, but also clearly in... I would say decolonization, woke ideology, critical race theory really would be the most accurate. And so very shocking, but it is still unfolding. And Candace Owens has just tweeted something about how there's more to it coming out. She says, um, breaking, I just got word that two officers are due to be fired over the release of the Nashville Manifesto pages. Allegedly, the documents were sold by one of the officers. Yesterday, I said I wanted to wait to report on the release pages 
because while it was a major break, I felt the documents were incomplete and did not paint an accurate picture of what transpired, given the amount of evidence we know was collected in the aftermath of the horrific shooting. I'm glad I waited yesterday evening. I was contacted by a source with more concrete information regarding all details on Hordrail's many notebooks. And she goes on, but so maybe there's more going to come out, Toby, but what the initial notebooks show is kind of what we were all suspecting. I noticed you referred to the shooter there, Nick, as as him. I don't know what it is. Own rule. Uh, Well, the shooter was born Audrey Elizabeth Hale, but um, self-identified as a man and called herself Aiden Hale. So I'd forgotten. Um, so yeah, so I broke. I did the Toby thing, but only out of confusion. People, <laughs> people always think it's a conspiracy. I just was trying to juggle so many topics on this podcast, and with my massive amounts of preparation that people claim I don't do, but I always don't always have the right tweet in front of me. So yeah, I called the. So it's a, it's a, it's a girl pretending to be a man who, who shot people because they were white. Yeah, and um, and it it seemed like she thought she was doing something on behalf of the trans community and linking the so-called oppression and violence um, inflicted on trans people to white supremacy and the patriarchy. And um, the stuff in her diary reflects that. She expressed her hatred for white privilege. She called the students at this elementary school, what we call a primary school, crackers, which is, of course, a racial pejorative for white people. Um, And she also seemed to be, sorry, Yet she seemed to be motivated in part by class resentment. Those crackers going to fancy private schools with those fancy car keys and sports backpacks with their daddy's Mustangs and convertibles. F you little shits. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, pretty awful. Um, uh, But seemingly the reason, as you say, they wanted to suppress this manifesto is because um, it doesn't fit the usual narrative, which is that um, school shooters are themselves far-right white supremacists. Um, uh, in this case, uh, she was the opposite. Yeah. Want to kill all you little crackers. I hope I have a high death count. I'm ready. I hope my victims aren't. Incredibly disturbing. And this is obviously a person knowing they're going to die. It's incredibly disturbing. And I said mental illness there, which I sort of say colloquially, but I might take that back because it might be more the Peterson thing when he was talking about Columbine. Of Maybe it's not mental illness. It's just... It's just human evil that we have to reckon with. It's someone deep in resentment, confused perhaps, but maybe, well, let's the, see the, if there's any. The, let's the, see. The, the, the conservative complaint about the way mass shooters are characterized is that whenever they're far left, it's excused as just a manifestation of their mental illness. But when they're far right, it's blamed on far right ideology. And, um, this seems to be a case of, you know, a person who uh, shot what she shot, I think, six people, three of them school children, um, primarily for ideological reasons, not because she was psychologically disturbed. Yeah, that's I mean, yeah, exactly. It can be ideological. I mean, I think I'll take it case by case. I mean, we need to know more about this one, but it looks it looks very, very bad. And it was already awful, obviously, but in terms of the motivation and that's Presumably why it was suppressed, we don't know yet. But YouTube have already banned banned it. They banned Crowder talking about it. This is why he has Rumble. They said, uh, we wanted to let you know our team reviewed your content and we think it violates our violent criminal organizations policy, which is interesting. I mean, they just say anything. These algorithms just... Was, what does just, that mean? Yeah. Someone will deploy the algorithm to say, shut that down. Yeah, obviously they don't want it out there. But yeah, very. I mean, what it, what it does show... 
and I'm sort of floundering slightly there, but what it does show is the, I wouldn't say floundering is too strong, but what it does show is the violence at the heart of wokeness and the evil at the heart of it. And we saw that with the decolonization stuff in the wake of October 7th. We saw, you know, this is the true face of decolonization. What did you think it meant? And this is from the people on the decolonization side. We saw that it meant rape and murder. And this is what critical race theory and wokeness can mean. They can mean actual violence and murder. I mean, you've taken on the ideas. You're told white people are scum and that they're oppressing you and they're evil oppressors and they have no redeeming features. Why on earth wouldn't you kill them in, in one sense if you, were the, if you were a violent person? I mean, th- this is what woke ideology must lead to. It's a violent, yeah. nihilistic death cult. I mean, Elon Musk described it as a death cult recently on, on Joe Rogan and that seems pretty accurate. That wasn't that... Um... Uh, the environmental movement, though, of course, the two are linked. Um, uh, I don't think it was. It was in reference to, I could be wrong, wasn't it? In, it wasn't in reference to, he said it, it was in reference to, the, it was a really interesting point. It was San Francisco, he says, look at this culture that this this ideology has created. And they've right. exported this to the whole world via Twitter. Right. So I think he was talking he about, talked about as a whole. He talked about the kind of downtown San Francisco looking like, you know, a zombie apocalypse movie. Um, yeah, and I think he was ranging across different manifestations of the woke mind virus of which um, kind of um, uh, radical progressivism is one and radical environmentalism is another. Um, so I think we're both right on that score. Okay. Um, uh, but yeah, no, you're totally right. And we discussed it um, a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Um, and it's it's disturbing, you know, to realise that... Um, when the woke cancel people metaphorically, that isn't the limit of how far many of them are prepared to go. Um, they don't just want to socially ostracize you, deprive you of your livelihood, get you sacked or kicked out of a university. If they could go further and literally destroy you, tear you limb from limb, judging from the way in which they celebrated the massacres in Israel on October 7th, they would. And that is quite frightening and hopefully will be a bit of a wake-up call to people who've allowed this toxic ideology to grow in their institutions, if not capture their institutions. Certainly hope so. Okay, so I think we've covered that story. Now, Toby, I believe you have a second advert for us. Yes, and this one is from our most loyal, our most long-standing sponsor, the much-loved Thor Holt. Positive results for repeat offenders. Thor's clients return for the same reason he keeps sponsoring Toby and Nick. Unlike prison, advertising on the Weekly Skeptic actually works. Indeed, Thor is so effective that InnoApps have returned multiple times over the years when they needed a great result. Dermot, VP of Technology at InnoApps, said this on LinkedIn. I worked with Thor to prepare for a major event where I was the host. Stepping outside my comfort zone, I sought specialist guidance to ensure I was as prepared as I could be. Over the weeks leading up to the event, Thor and I established the tone and voice of the event and brainstormed ideas for the script. We also focused on delivery style and ways to improve my presentation techniques. Despite feeling nervous on the day, I knew I was well prepared as I could be and confident in my message. And thanks to Thor's invaluable help, I achieved my objectives. I highly recommend working with Thor for any presentations, pitches or speeches that you may need to deliver. And Thor's help will significantly improve your chances of success. So you can connect with Thor on uh, WhatsApp 
Um, and his number, if you want to connect on WhatsApp, is plus four four oh seven nine oh six three two one five nine three. That's plus four four oh seven nine oh six three two one five nine three. Or you can connect on LinkedIn at LinkedIn.com slash in slash Thorholt. Thanks, Thor. Although actually it's generally plus four four or the zero, isn't it? When you have the That's plus true. four four, you don't have the zero. So the, I'm sure the listener can work that out though. And because Thor's put that in the ad, so it is actually on him. But thank you, Thor. But now let's go over to Will with our top stories of the week. So I'm here with Will Jones with the top stories of the week. Will, um, the first story you wanted to talk about was by Jeffrey Tucker, the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. And we republished a piece by him saying that lockdown scepticism has now gone mainstream in the United States. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so this was a reporting on a major feature article in New York magazine uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks titled, very, very strikingly titled, COVID lockdowns were a giant experiment. It was a failure. Uh, And this is by two excellent journalists, Joe Nocera, I think I've got that right, and Bethany McLean, uh, who, and it's based on a new book called The Big Fail, obviously on the same theme. And this is remarkable, Jeffrey says, because this is, is really a sign, an indication of really hardcore lockdown scepticism going mainstream uh, in the States. Uh, we have these two journalists, this major mainstream magazine, uh, going through the evidence for lockdowns, pointing out that they were highly destructive and did not succeed in any of the ways that they were in, that they were intended and claimed uh, to succeed in, and they have trampled on all our established uh, norms of rights and liberties. Um, do you think it's a little bit optimistic of Jeffrey to claim this is a turning point, a sea change, because plenty of other mainstream American publications and uh, research institutes, think tanks, um, have expressed scepticism about the lockdown policy. Um, so have some US governors, some senior political leaders. Um, so this doesn't feel like a difference in kind rather than a difference in degree. I, I also worry that, um, of course, people are going to be more sceptical about the need to imprison people in their homes, shutter businesses, impose social distancing rules, etc. Um, once the pandemic's passed and they sober up and are no longer panicking. But that doesn't mean that there won't be overwhelming public support for another lockdown in the event of another pandemic as fear once again kicks in and people lose their reason. Well, you, you say that obviously people will be against those things uh, at this distance from the pandemic. But as we've been seeing from the COVID inquiry uh, in the UK, quite clearly lockdown has many defenders, particularly in the UK at the moment. Still, uh, we see it's being defended as as a, essentially an establishment orthodoxy. They're wheeling out the modellers, Neil Ferguson himself, and uh, the modellers, the scientists, John Edmonds, all the defenders of lockdown, uh, to come out and explain how the only problem with UK lockdown policy was that lockdown was not done early enough, hard enough, fast enough, etc, etc. And Dominic Cummings going on and on about how he was right and the whole anti-lockdown establishment as they were back at the beginning of 2020 uh, were wrong. So, uh, So in fact, there is in this country, in the UK, we see that uh, lockdown is very much still, um, if you like, mainstream orthodoxy. And I think the significant thing uh, that comes out of Jeffrey's article is that in the US, 
uh, that really isn't the case. He points out that, in fact, although this article is significant in his view, in a mainstream by which um, he, he means old, old school establishment, if you like, uh, centre left, that kind of mainstream New York Times, uh, rather than, uh, as you were saying, though, we've, we've seen certain governors and states being sceptical throughout uh, the pandemic, but this is the kind of the, the old school establishment mainstream. So we, we see them being sceptical in this article, but he points out that actually... Uh, that in the US, that you will struggle to find any defenders of lockdown anymore. The kind of scenes that we see at the UK COVID inquiry, you just don't see uh, in the States, uh, he says. And that's and that's really interesting, that lockdown, even those who might still be, uh, might still think that it was the right thing to do in the circumstances, they're not really uh, touting the importance of lockdown and uh, saying how great it was and saying that we need to do it again in the States. Uh, and I think that's probably linked uh, to the fact that, um, as you said, Toby, there were governors, uh, states, large states, Florida, Texas, uh, rejecting lockdowns way back uh, end of 2020 uh, and in 2021. And so it became a major political issue in the states uh, with really clear examples of why, how lockdown really wasn't necessary and people, uh, huge, huge numbers of people rejecting it. And so it became a major political issue there. In a way, it really didn't here. And, and so we still have the nonsense, uh, the outrage, if you like, of the COVID inquiry uh, still pushing that as being the right way, right way to go. Mm. I mean, I think the, the reason I'm slightly more sceptical than you about what good news this is, is um, the people making the decisions, the deep state, the biosecurity state, the people who will be in charge of public health policy in the United States when there's another pandemic um, I'm not sure that they've changed their minds. And it may be that we think they have because they're not publicly defending the policy, but perhaps that's just because there isn't a forum in which they could do that as there is here in the form of the Hallett Inquiry. And another reason for scepticism, Will, that things will be better next time in light of all this scepticism is that there was quite a lot of scepticism um, a couple of weeks before the world was plunged into lockdown. Um, uh, even among public health officials, you know, the pandemic preparedness strategy did not recommend a lockdown. There was a famous report issued by the WHO in 2019, specifically counselling against locking down in the event of a pandemic hitting. People just seem to lose their reason and discount previous experience when they when they start to panic under the threat of tens of thousands of deaths, which they think they might be held accountable for not doing more to prevent. So, yeah, yeah maybe, maybe, maybe there's a kind of, I mean, I think certainly there are many more lockdown sceptics and many more senior and mainstream lockdown sceptics on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, but I, I, I'm not prepared to bet that we wouldn't lock down again, both in America and here uh, in the event of another pandemic depending on the state of the economy. Yeah, I, I don't really disagree with, uh, with a lot of that. Uh, although I think in the in the US, I think a, a lot of states, uh, it would be very divided, I think, on probably on ideological and political lines. Uh, but I think the, the, the important point is that if we're still in a position where the establishment, as in the UK, is, is subscribing to lockdown orthodoxy, then we've got no chance of not locking down uh, next time. Whereas at least if the if there is if there is scepticism about it now, uh, then we've got some chance of learning the lessons and not uh, rushing headlong into that kind of panic. So it's uh, it's not a sufficient condition to avoid it, but it does seem yeah. to be a necessary one. I think yeah, I think uh, yeah, but I think I think if our public authorities were 
persuaded that the lockdown policy was a mistake, then I think there'd be that would marginally reduce the risk of us locking down when faced with another pandemic. But nonetheless, I think it's overwhelmingly likely that we will, even even if we were able to persuade the public authorities to change their minds now. Anyway, let's talk about um, another couple of stories. Um, Elon Musk uh, was in town last week and um, for a summit with Rishi Sunak on AI. And it seemed to be a great love-in between officials, regulators and AI tycoons, moguls, um, all of whom seem to get on like a house on fire, no doubt stitching everything up so competitors will find it much harder to enter the AI marketplace. But um, one thing he did say, which I don't think any of us would disagree with, he described environmentalism as a death cult. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that, Will? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, this, these these are very striking comments, especially from uh, Musk, um, in a way, a leading environmentalist, uh, a billionaire who has set up a company specifically to make electric vehicles, uh, motivated, of course, uh, by the push to transition away from carbon uh, dioxide creating uh, fossil uh, internal combustion engines, uh, fossil fuels. Um, and he did, and Elon Musk did say, well, he didn't actually say this at the summit. Uh, he said it on Joe Rogan's uh, podcast just before flying to London. Uh, he made some very striking comments about uh, environmentalism. He says, uh, he, he calls himself an environmentalist, but he says, and he says, I'm pro-environment. But if you take environmentalism to an extreme, you start to view humanity as a plague on the surface of the earth, like a mold or something. Uh, and the environmental movement, he says, and I'm an envir- environmentalist, he adds, has gone too far. They've gone way too far. If you start thinking that humans are bad, then the natural conclusion is that humans should die out. And this is what uh, this is what Musk is really concerned about. He calls it um, a, a death cult. Uh, he says it's having a corrosive effect um, on civilization. Uh, he's worried about the what he calls the zombie apocalypse of downtown San Francisco, basically a kind of extinctionist mindset uh, that's taken uh, taken over taken uh, control of the minds um, of like a mind virus is one of another of his terms of really key people. So it's not just not just marginal people, but he, but he says that it remains. He claims it remains this death cult uh, remains largely in charge of Facebook and. Google. Um, now, this could sound like a classic uh, conspiracy theory. We know we don't like those, do we, Toby? Uh, but in fact, there is some reason to think that this that this ideology is not really it's not really a conspiracy. More of a it's it's the classic groupthink of a really dangerous, self-destructive way of thinking that just kind of takes control of of the way people uh, view the world and and just causes all kinds of bad policy decisions. Yes. And we published another piece today, actually, by Andy West, who's, I think, just published a much longer piece. We asked him to summarise it for us, a book, in fact, for the Global Warming Policy Foundation. Um, and his argument, he goes beyond, in a way, what Elon Musk is claiming. He says that environmental catastrophizing hysteria has has taken on the form of a new religion. So it's gone beyond merely being a cult. If we think of it as a cult as being, you know, um, a smallish social movement led by a charismatic leader um, and a religion as something much larger, not linked to any particular charismatic individuals with a more kind of fixed doctrine, etc. He argues that um, actually extreme environmentalism has become a new religion. It's gone beyond being a cult and has now become an established religion. 
Yeah, so this is yeah, this is Andy uh, Andy West, uh, written his new book, The Grip of Grip of Culture, and he and he goes, he says even more than that, and this is the the key uh, aspect, the key point about his book, as he goes into the social science of it, he looks at the social science definition of a religious movement or a cultural uh, artifact, uh, as he puts it, and shows that uh, that climate catastrophism uh, or climate alarmism has all the has all the characteristic features of uh, of a religious or cultural cultural movement. By what he, by which he means, it's not scientific um, or rational or logical. It's not based on evidence and a calm rational assessment of evidence, but that it has the characteristic uh, features of movements which are based on uh, emotion and are based on ideological commitments and value commitments. Uh, um, and he's, there's a couple of key charts which you can see uh, in his book and in the articles reproduce them uh, for The Daily Skeptic, which show uh, these, uh, these clear, it shows correlations between uh, people's uh, virtue signaling, if you like, so the way that their, their commitments to certain uh, claims about environment uh, and about the climate and how religious the society is, showing that the the background religiosity of the society correlates very closely the, with people's the way the way people commit to environmental uh, claims and statements. Like all social science, not always very not not always really easy to understand. So you've got to kind of think about it and to and look at the the charts to see what he's what he's saying. But the key but the key point is that he's looked at the evidence, he's looked at the data, the survey data, uh, and looked at the social scientific theory behind it, and and really shown that it's not just an a, an opinion uh, or a, or a groundless uh, view that that it looks like a, a religious uh, movement or phenomenon, but it actually has uh, the social scientific qualities of that. Um, as well, and that's really dangerous. And the point is, that's really dangerous because, um, as he says, that means it's not based on evidence and data. Um, it's become something which, uh, which therefore is not is is impervious to uh, to that exposure. Yeah. Does Does that mean, Will? Does that Does that mean then that um, we at the Daily Skeptic trying to introduce a bit of rationality and empiricism into the climate debate are wasting our breath? because we're never going to convince the votaries of this particular religion that they're wrong by pointing to evidence which seems to contradict some of their claims or questioning how um, accurate their models are, the assumptions that are plugged into the models, picking apart inconsistencies in reports by the IPCC, are we wasting our breath? Does this mean we're wasting our breath? Well, it can certainly feel like that um, at times. And I think that there is something to be said for recognising that uh, that these things uh, like climate alarmism and all kinds of um, of other things, as Andy says, it's not far, by far, it's far from the only phenomenon that takes on this kind of cultural aspect. But, it's, but if you recognise that, then you can, uh, you can attempt to counter it uh, by appealing uh, yourself to uh, to, to similar deep instinctive drives in in humans, so you can you can appeal to emotion, and you can try to appeal to the same kind of kind of things. Try to push back uh, with an alternative culture that obviously has risks because it's it's again it's not appealing to the rational but to the um, but to the emotional. But you, in a way, you have to work with the way humans are, with the way people are. So you have to work um, counter fire with fire in a way. But I think also I think it's important to recognise that although we're describing this as a religious phenomenon. So we're looking 
uh, we're seeing that it has that kind of non-rational aspect to it in terms of being in terms of being emotional. But that that doesn't mean uh, that it's not possible to move things and to shift things perhaps slowly by appealing to reason. There's, there'll always be people, I think, who do primarily work or more uh, solidly work via their their rational uh, aspect and who want to base their beliefs as closely as possible on on evidence and are able to resist the uh, the zeitgeist, the, uh, the the cultural phenomenon that are going around them, and um, and, and so we, we yeah, I think we have to keep pushing away at that uh, and really trying to uh, really trying to appeal to people's heads and just to show because in a way uh, what else can we do? Yeah. Okay. Well. Um, well. On that optimistic note, um, let me say thank you very much for telling us about our top stories of the week. Great. Thanks, Toby. All right, so that was Will and Toby. I'm back now with Toby. And would you like to do our third ad, Toby? We've got a million downloads, so we've just got so many ads now. Yeah, we're doing well. Um, but I think we've got room for one more. Um, I think four is probably the maximum. But um, still, if you want to advertise, contact us at, um, uh, I think probably the best address for us is still thedailyskeptic at gmail.com. Um, so this is an ad for The Wild Goose Chef. It may seem like we are living through a rather bleak era. But don't be dispirited. Gather family and friends to celebrate the milestones of life. Birthdays, christenings, anniversaries, even funerals. Any excuse is a good excuse to have a party. The Wild Goose Chef specialises in intimate dinners and larger parties for up to 100 guests. If you're having a party, you need the Michelin-trained Wild Goose Chef to do the cooking. He will cheerfully take the stress out of all aspects of planning your event so you can relax and enjoy the night. London, Berkshire, Wiltshire and the Cotswolds, this guy puts himself about. If you're hosting a party, it makes good sense to get a well-trained, experienced and reliable chef to do all the hard work. So call the Wild Goose Chef on 07779 658 164. That's 0779, sorry, 0 triple seven nine six five eight one six four or email him at joe at wildgoosechef.com joe at wildgoosechef.com the wild goose chef is a proud member of the free speech union and is happy to offer a 10 percent discount to other free speech union members so there's a terrific offer that any free speech union members would be wise to take advantage of all right thanks so much for your support now let's go to everyone's favorite section it's peak woke Toby, uh, do you want to start this week or shall I? So um, I don't know if you noticed, but there was um, there was this kind of uh, slightly odd group of um, feminists who I think led the, as far as it, yeah, they led the occupation, the rush hour sit-in um, uh, at, I think, Euston, or maybe it was Charing Cross. Um, and uh, no, it was Liverpool Street. It was the first of the um, uh, London station sit-ins and they're a group called sisters uncut and you know we sometimes think the anti-woke coalition is um uh you know a slightly odd bedfellows but i think the i think the pro-palestinian coalition is even odder and more disjointed with some very unusual bedfellows and sisters uncut this radical feminist group have somehow allied themselves with kind of islamists and uh, the way they kind of squared this circle is that they blamed um uh they blamed deaths in palestine on um white sorry in gaza on white supremacist patriarchy 
um, uh, somehow that was the reason um, the IDF um, were um, uh, invading, about to launch a, launch a ground invasion um, of, of Gaza because of white supremacist patriarchy. It's like the only other group in the kind of pro Palestinian coalition is probably queers for for Palestine. Um, uh, you know, wouldn't it be marvelous if um, if some of these groups could be um, shipped off? You know, offer them a two week all expenses paid holiday in Gaza City, uh, where they can meet their heroes, Hamas, and see just how they're received. It yeah, that would be, be good. And so Sisters I'd, Uncut. I'd watch, I'd, I'd, I'd watch that reality show. Sorry, yeah, go absolutely. On. Now I was going to say Sisters Uncut. Isn't that a a 90s all-female R&B pop group. I mean, I think I've got their first album. Doesn't that sound to you like the sort of on <laughs> Vogue yeah. era? Of, it's Sisters yeah. Uncut with their new single, Free Your Mind. Um, <laughs> it seems, uh, what, what does it actually mean? Is it, is, it a, is it some reference to, if I just made it was a, a reference to joke? domestic violence. So oh. they wanted to stop women being cut by abusive partners. Okay, I was so, worried it was something to do with female circumcision or something. It'd be even worse. What I said was still bad. I sound like Padre. Still bad, but not quite as bad, <laughs> I thought. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll do one then, which is Just Stop Oil Duo smash famous painting in National Gallery and begin shouting at public, which is how the Express put it, which is just so on brand for Just Stop Oil. And they smashed up the Rokeby Venus by Velasquez. And they did it as a tribute to Mary Richardson, who, by the way, was head of the women's section of the British Union of Fascists, which I think is so on brand for Just Stop Oil. They're eco-fascists paying homage to an actual fascist. And that's got to be Pete Woke, Toby, when you're smashing up a painting in reference to a, a fascist. Haven't you just gone fully peak? That was, um, yeah, that was, that's, that's pretty off the charts. It would be hard to top that one this week. So, um, and even the suffragettes themselves, which Mary Richardson, the latter, later fascist, actually was, uh, were basically terrorists anyway. We can get into that another day. But also, and Leo pointed out, they're attacking it with hammers, like plastic hammers made from oil. So, and the glass is not made from oil. So they're attacking glass with oil. But this is another thing worth considering what's your other one toby so i, I got a scottish trans teacher so let me get the um uh, gender right who wanted to be called mux mx instead of miss reported uh, the parent of one of the children at the school to the police uh, because she the parent complained about the teacher imposing gender ideology on a classroom of little kids. And um, the the trans teacher described that as a threatening communication. And of course, Police Scotland turned up on the doorstep of this concerned mum and gave her the third degree. So yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's not as unusual as um, Just Stop Oil paying tribute to an actual fascist, but um, I guess it's a fairly typical uh, weekly story by now. Um, police siding with the trans rights activists uh, against the gender critical feminists, but you know this seemed to be a particularly egregious example. Yeah, classic, classic stuff. I've got one more here that I thought we might have done last week because it seems so long ago, but I don't think we actually did. Which of course was the Marks and Spencer advert. They put out this very unpopular advert of people destroying things associated with Christmas. And the idea was, I just want to do what I want at Christmas and not observe any of this stuff. And this was a kind of seen as an attack on Christmas, wildly unpopular. And then they had to remove an outtake from the advert, which, which seemed to show, uh, it looked to some people like the Palestine flag was burning, but of course it wasn't. It was just some Christmas colors, some Christmas hats burning in the fire. But then they had to issue the standard ridiculous apology 
and any offence caused by by bar. So this was ridiculous on multiple fronts. And they had to they put out a new advert that was far less controversial. The only guilty thing I had about the original advert was uh, obviously I hated its anti Christmas message and general sort of wokeness. And there was no white men in the advert except for an elf who was chucked halfway across the town. He was the only white man represented in the advert. But the only thing I felt guilty about was. I actually don't want to do anything at Christmas either. I do want the narcissistic, selfish Christmas it was it was advocating because I can't stand doing all the family stuff anymore, even though I love my family, of course. I just don't actually want to spend actual time in their proximity, you know, and so maybe I'm maybe I'm bad and wrong. Are you, so just, does this mean that you're not planning to go home for Christmas this year? You're just going to sit in your bed sit, feeling sorry for yourself, watching Selling hey, Sunset? One bedroom, and I might have a two bedroom by then. Thank you very much. But I, I, I well, look, it doesn't mean that. I mean, there's talk that we, we go at my brother's house anyway, so it's actually just a short right, walk. Right. I always go over. But there's talk of us okay. going to Cumbria because he won't be able to because of stuff going on in his house. But apparently that's not going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. I'll obviously do whatever I'm obliged to. I'm just saying I'd rather not if I could get away with it, but I can't. I was going to say you can come and spend Christmas um, with the youngs if you want, but uh, oh, that's a nice offer. It would be. I, I would. I actually would accept. I think my father would take it as a grave insult, and my mum probably, right. because they know they know what you're like. No, not because of that. Because I wasn't there. Um, so one, I didn't actually see the Marks and Spencer's ad, but. Sounds egregious. The first and the second one. Um, the uh, I, I, I I didn't know whether you wanted to do this one. I think you did it last night on on headliners. But the story about the um, uh, German kindergarten, which is currently called the Anne Frank Kindergarten, is um, changing its name to something more diverse and progressive, um, and um, which is just unbelievable, particularly at the present moment. Um, but um, uh, yeah, so much for never again. But um, Titiana McGrath, as we know, is Andrew Doyle, came up with some good suggestions as to what they should call the Anne Frank Kindergarten to make it a more inclusive and diverse name. He suggested, or she suggested, Queen Latifah Day Centre, Michelle Obama Playgroup, OJ Simpson Preschool Wonderland, and River to the Sea World of Adventures. <laughs> Wow, yeah. And by the way, it's Titania, just so I don't get an email from Andy. Okay. But yeah, yeah. I mean, the real name they call it is World Explorer Kindergarten, which is so grotesque. And they said it wanted they wanted a more inclusive name, so they excluded Anne Frank and deleted her from history and the public consciousness. It is pretty disturbing. I mean, it's a minor example, but it is a disturbing example of the way people seem to be trying to kind of rid themselves of any, any sort of remnants of anti-Semitism so they can be as anti-Semitic as they want. What do you think? I mean, or, or is it just weak woke stupidity? Well, I know. I think it's pot, isn't it? It's um, they want they want to, I suppose. Anne Frank um, used to be, you know, um, uh, a victim of the Holocaust that everyone could celebrate, um, but under the new woke orthodoxy, Jews cannot be oppressed because they're the colonizers, the settlers, the oppressors. So their history has to be airbrushed and any claim to victimhood wiped out. Yeah. I don't know if you have any more, Toby. There was just um, schools in England block lessons on Middle East over fears of bias claims. So they're too terrified to even teach Israel versus Palestine. That's kind of Pete Woke. And there was uh, dozens of bird species clouded by racism and misogyny are officially renamed to avoid glorifying slave owners and Confederate generals. So there was people like John James Audubon and there was the Audubon Shearwater has to be renamed and other examples like that. 
Winfield Scott has one named after him that has to be renamed. And it's going to be a bit of a nightmare for me because I've got a, a parrot called Robert E. Lee that I just make <laughs> repeat racist things. So I, he's going to have to be cold, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, don't you saw black, that one. Well, blackbirds have to become birds of colour. Good point. Bit of strange silence after it. <laughs> I thought you might elaborate, <laughs> but you didn't. Any more Pete Wokes, Toby? No, that's it from me. Okay, well, we may as well go and quickly review the reviews. And uh, let me just bring some up here. We get so many amazing reviews, but I also have to note down the timestamps. People don't understand the amount of work I put into this show and things I do. I mean, I don't think I talk about it enough. So um, let me just find some because I'm going to scroll down here and look on the Apple app. So we have the Sanity Oasis. This is from NJH, who calls their review the Sanity Oasis. And then they say, yes, it lacks the enduring frisson of violent disagreement that London Calling gave us of late. But then it attacks Dylan Ball a little bit, so I'll, I think I'll skip that. Then it says, the Weekly Skeptic has more of an interview feel, but Nick has developed a unique style. The finesse we got from the likes of Wogan and Parkinson beautifully evolved for the podcast medium. We get exactly the right amount of well-timed gags of a very high quality to add comedic color. You can't do this without diligent preparation. Thank you. But <laughs> as Toby said last week, the fact that it's not obvious is a virtue. Those who criticize him for lack of preparation should probably stick to BBC Morning TV. And then, it's, then they go on, they say, if pressed for criticism, it would be that it's too consonant, but trying to artificially create differences on the topics discussed would, of course, be fruitless. Maybe a special debate episode. Religion is of net benefit to humanity, I suspect. This might tickle up something a bit more adversarial. And then they say, why not have a culture corner? Given Nick's obvious talents, perhaps that might be something to consider. Oh, a music feature, they say we could have. And they just go on about how brilliant we are and well done, chaps. There's some bits I didn't want to read because they, they diss, diss other people. But thank you very much for that review. Uh, we could do a culture corner. Uh, I haven't always seen the same things Toby's seen or seen anything except selling a sunset. As for the idea <laughs> it's too consonant, I'm not sure about that. I think we disagree on quite a lot. We disagree on immigration. I think we disagree like virtually every week on something. I think it's just because I'm quite high in agreeableness, as Peterson would say. I tend to just, whoever I'm talking to, be quite nice about it. I mean, I think that's what it is. Yeah, sometimes we disagree, but um, usually fairly agreeably. Yeah, I think that's what it is. That was quite a long review. We thank you for it. Five stars, of course. And someone else says, top of the pods, love this podcast. This is Lucy of Kent. Top of the pods, love this podcast. Have followed the lockdown Daily Skeptic virtually since inception. Thank you. Thank you, Toby, for setting up and all the team for their fantastic contributions. This podcast is amusing and interesting, and the banter between Toby and Nick works well. Certainly not too long, so keep up the good work. Nick, we love you. Feel you need that boost. <laughs> <laughs> and you and Toby are a great combination. Lucy, well, thank you, Lucy, for the boost there. And there were so many. I read that updated one, didn't I, where you, you it, they changed their mind because you changed your view on, oh, yeah. on Russell Brand. And uh, so thanks for all those reviews. Leave your review wherever you listen. You can listen, listen to it on Podbean and leave a review there or Apple. And please give us five stars because it helps the podcast and it helps other people find the podcast is a thing I heard someone else say. So I'm going to start saying that. And by the way, if you want to go and listen to my other podcast, The Current Thing, we've just released an excellent episode with Laura Dodsworth. Who doesn't love Laura? And it's going to be a great episode. Well, it is a great episode, so go and listen to it. And we've got loads more great ones coming out. The Current Thing, available on all platforms. And Toby, is there anything you would like to plug? Yeah, well, Laura Dodsworth is a friend of mine, and um, she was the person who came up with the idea uh, for the October Declaration. Um and a group of us helped her realize it, but it was her baby. Um, so if anyone wants to sign it, 
expressing your solidarity with British Jews, condemning anti-Semitism here and in the Middle East, um, go to britishfriendsofisrael.org. Anyone can sign the um, validating email thing should be working now. So go there, sign it if you haven't already. Join over 75,000 people expressing their solidarity with British Jews. Um, Apart from that, you know, please go to The Daily Skeptic and donate if you like what we're doing um only for only a fiver you get below the line commenting rights it's the daily skeptic at sorry now i think it's just dailyskeptic.org so www.dailyskeptic.org and if you haven't joined the free speech union yet what's taking you uh you can join it's very cheap if you're a student it's only 29.95 a year and believe me if you ever need our help the value of that help will be a hundred times that value um uh, so go to freespeechunion.org and hit join absolutely and i've got to say go to buymeacoffee.com slash nick dixon if you want to support me and all my various endeavors including this and the current thing and help us keep the lights on and soon we'll have a, a website you can really get some great content on and we'll switch to that but for now the best way is to just go to buymeacoffee.com slash nick dixon some people haven't understood that it's a metaphorical coffee it's just a way of donating. It's just called Buy Me A Coffee, guys. There's no actual milky substance changing hands. You'll be glad to know. Buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon. Buy me a digital coffee and leave a comment. I'll reply to them all in due course. And I think that is it. So until next week, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. Stay skeptical.